Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. When Hashem created Adam Arishon, He put him in Gan Eden and gave him all of the tools that he needed to succeed. But interestingly enough, He did not give him Chava right away. The Medrash explains that HaKadosh Baruch waited. First Hashem put Adam through a number of steps, and only after Adam went through an entire procedure did Hashem give him Chava. And the Medrash explains that that is part of the reason why Hashem asked Adam to name each of the creations. Tell me the name of this animal, and tell me the name of this animal. Each one Hashem brought in front of Adam, and Adam said flawlessly, Zechamor, Zeshor, Zesus, Zegamal. He gave a perfect name defining the essence of each animal. And part of that reason for that process was to show the wisdom of Adam Rishon, that he could define the essence of the animal and put it into one phrase. But there was another reason. And Medrash explains that that reason only came to bear when Adam was finished. After going through the entire wild kingdom, after going through each animal, Adam made an observation. Each animal is created, Zohar Vinakeva, male and female. Each animal has a mate. Says Adam to himself, I do not have a mate. And only when Adam asked Hashem for a mate, that's when Hashem said, Lotov heyos Adam Levado, Eselo Ezek Negdo, I'm going to make a helpmate for Adam. But explains in Medrash that Hashem specifically waited until Adam asked, until he said the words, Why is it that every other animal in creation has a mate and I don't? Only then did Hashem provide it. And the Medrash explains why is it that Hashem set Adam up for this, to actually ask for it? Because if it could be Hashem knew, that Adam would one day complain. The woman that you gave me, she brought me to sin. And Hashem recognized that Adam would not appreciate the woman that he gave her. And a process, a step to help Adam appreciate was to have him ask for it. I guess it's human nature that when you request something, when you ask for it, you recognize the need, and when you're given it, you appreciate it more. For that reason, Hashem waited till Adam to ask. Only when Adam asked did he actually, did Hashem create the Schava. And that's a Medrash. And this Medrash is very, very difficult to understand. Because it could well be that you and I, if we don't recognize a need and we're given something, we don't appreciate it. Certainly, we'd understand it with a juvenile individual, a person who's not very mature. If they don't recognize a need, they don't appreciate what it is that they're given. But we're talking about Adam Rishon. When Adam opened his eyes, he was brilliant in understanding and perception that captured everything in his sight and recognized and understood it. This is the handcraft of Hashem with such wisdom that nothing in creation could parallel it. When the Malachim saw his wisdom, Bikshu Lomashira, on a certain level, apparently they mistook him for Hashem.
They wanted to say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh because His holiness, His purity, His wisdom was astonishing. He was not like man today. Before the Chet, Odom was in a league in and of himself, a totally different class, miles and miles above anything in creation. So why would he need this little trick? Adam, I'm going to wait for you to ask. When you ask, you appreciate it, but if not, you're not going to. This man is brilliant. This man is mature. This man is extremely sophisticated. And he knows that Hashem designed for him the perfect helpmate. Custom-crafted, hand-designed to meet his needs, exactly his needs. There's no other human being there. There's no possible mistaking Maybe I married the wrong one. Hashem custom-crafted, hand-designed, the perfect helpmate. Why does Adam need to go through these steps of asking so he'll appreciate it, otherwise he won't appreciate it? It sounds very difficult to understand. And to answer this question and to put it into perspective, I'd like to share with you a marshal. The Chavos of Lovos gives us an interesting illustration. Imagine the following. Imagine a man who at... 35 years of age, loses his sight. And he has to relearn everything. He has to relearn how to walk, relearn how to navigate, relearn his entire existence. He puts much effort in, and he rebuilds for himself a life, and he lives in an utter state of darkness for 10 years. Finally, at the end of those years, he hears about an operation, experimental, somewhat dangerous, but in theory, they could reconnect his optic nerve. He consults with his rov. He consults with other medical professionals. He sits with his family and he decides, I'm going to go ahead with it. The day of the operation, he's wheeled into the operating room. They put him under anesthetic. And for 10 hours, a long, difficult operation. And slowly, slowly, the anesthetic is beginning to wear off. And he begins to contemplate. When they pull off the bandages, he will now know how he will live the rest of his life, in utter blackness or with sight. With his family gathered at the feet of his bed, with the doctors and nurses there, the nurse comes over and pulls off one bandage, pulls off a second, he opens his eyes and he sees colors, dimension. He sees the faces of his loved ones. He looks out the window and he sees a meadow, grass, trees, the sky, with tears in his eyes, he says, Doctor, doctor, what could I ever do to repay you for this gift of sight? The Chovos of Chovos explains to us that that hargasha, that sensation, we are supposed to experience. But not once in a lifetime, not once a year, daily. We have a list of brachas that we make each morning. One of them is Baruch Ata Hashem, Blessed be you Hashem Pokeach Ivrim, who gives sight to the blinded. And the reality is that we have this astonishing gift called sight, but we don't recognize it, and we don't appreciate it. And if you think about it, and if you read through those brachas, that list of gifts that we have, how many times do we stop to think of the fact that I have legs with which to walk, hands with which to feel, I have sensation, I have touch, I have hearing, I have tremendous gifts at my fingertips. We human beings are a bit of a curious breed. For years and years, we could have treasures upon treasures. We don't give it a second thought. 
The minute one of them is somewhat touched or is gone, immediately the complaints find their home. Hashem, why me? Why me? For the past decades that you had it, you didn't think about your mobility. You didn't think about the sense of touch, of hearing, of sight. You didn't recognize the tremendous gift that you had. And the reality is that we human beings take an awful lot for granted. And if you spend even a few minutes looking at the amount of care, wisdom, and foresight that Hashem put into this world strictly so that we should enjoy, you'll see an astonishing amount of details. Let's start with something basic. In the world, there's something called color. Now, color is something that didn't need to be there. In the olden days, movies, TV were shot in black and white. And you could see the entire drama within the grayscale. Why is it that there are so many different use variations, shades of color? When my daughter went to kindergarten, I found out that there were four shades of teal. If you open up Microsoft Word, on the color wheel, you'll find 16 million different colors. Why create it? From a functional utilitarian purpose, the world would work very well in black and white. And the answer is, if the world were created for functional use only, there would be no answer. Hashem could have well created it in black and white. But the difference between a world in black and white and a world created in color is that a world created in color is beautiful. And Hashem put that feature into the world for one reason, so that we should open our eyes, see a sunrise, and say, wow, that's magnificent. Hashem created that for us to enjoy, to look at a sunset, to look at the ocean blue, to look at the midnight sky and see the beauty and to enjoy it. But it requires focus, it requires taking time, and it requires training to look at the trees in the fall as they change colors and study the patterns and to study the ocean and to look at pictures or if you have the opportunity to be under the water and scuba dive and see, to see the beauty, to see the Alps, to see the colors, to see the magnificence of this world and to understand that you have to focus on it and you have to appreciate it. You have to study a flower. You have to study the petals. You have to study the the veins that hold it up. And you have to recognize something very, very astonishing. Much of this world was created, fashioned as it was for us to enjoy. There's a minog that we stay up and shoe us all night learning. I usually get punch drunk about 3 o'clock. And I remember one year I was giving shear, and uh, somehow during, during Kriya Satora, that morning during laning, I fell asleep. I was standing up. And that was a big one for me because I'd never done that before. And when I opened my eyes, I sort of caught myself, I opened my eyes, my head was pointed towards the bima, and I couldn't help but laugh. Why? Because on the bima was a floral arrangement. And I started looking at these flowers, and it was astonishing. The colors, the variations, the shapes. And here's the point. The bee is attracted by the sense of smell. The bee is pulled to the pollen. The bee is pulled to the nectar because of the sense of smell. Bees are largely colorblind, and certainly the variations in the color are not needed to attract the different insects to pollinate the flowers. The beautiful colors, variations, and hues are there for our enjoyment. 
but it requires stopping the busyness, stopping what we normally do, and recognizing how much care, foresight, and wisdom Hashem put into these things. And it's not just mountain ranges, and it's not just flowers. Think about something as basic as food. The Stiplagon points out that by all rights, foods should all taste the same. Food serves a basic purpose, nutritional needs. All foods should taste like brown beans, maybe potatoes, but that's not the way food tastes. Foods have so many different flavors, aromas, textures to them. And why do it? From a nutritional standpoint, all the food could taste like soggy cardboard, and we would have to eat it anyway. But that's not the way food tastes. Foods have so many different flavors, textures, <clears throat> aromas. Why did Hashem create it that way? For one reason. Because eating, which is something we have to do, Hashem wanted us to enjoy. And Hashem wanted us to experience it, to enjoy it. And so many of the features that Hashem put into this world are strictly to enhance our enjoyment of it. And I once was okay to hear Rabbi Miller, Zetzal, describe an orange. He says, if you ever notice an orange, when you take off the peel, is comprised of many wedges. And if you take a wedge separately, you'll note that it's covered by a membrane. Thin little skin. I remember very clearly in fourth grade being bored one day and peeling back the skin. And you'll see hundreds of little juice sacks. And the juice in the orange is contained in those teeny little sacks. Now here's the question. <clears throat> Why did Hashem arrange the cellular structure of the orange to be that way? Why did Hashem arrange the membrane to form <clears throat> and these little juice sacks to form? The answer could be found by looking at those children's uh, candy with the, that... Uh, brag about bite in for a burst of flavor. They have a liquid inside. When you bite into the membrane of the orange, there's a burst of flavor. You see, it wasn't enough that the orange should have that tangy, sort of sweet, sort of citrusy taste. Hashem wanted to enhance it so that when you bite into that wedge, you have a burst, you break open those tiny little juice sacks, and there's a burst of flavor. There's an equivalent amount of water in a watermelon, but it's a very different experience. You see, it wasn't enough to have different flavors. Hashem wanted to enhance it and give us variation. And if you think about it, you'll find that foods come in so many different colors, variation, textures. All of it has one purpose, so that we should look at it, so that we should enjoy it. And with that being said, here's an interesting observation. When was the last time you actually enjoyed food? Think about your favorite dish. Imagine for a minute. This is your favorite dish, and let's say whether your mother makes it or it's a restaurant meal. Do you remember the last time you ate it? If you're like most people, now let's pick your favorite dish, whatever it may be. You waited and you waited and finally you were there, and the first bite was delicious. Wow. And the second bite, not too bad. But by the third bite, and truly by the fourth bite, you were back into conversation and you weren't even paying attention to what you were eating if you paid attention to the first bite or the second at all. And I believe this concept is one that's quite fundamental. And that is for a human being to appreciate that which he is given, he has to stop and train himself. And it's not natural. You could be given riches. You could be given such gifts. But if you don't train yourself to appreciate it, it's like they're not there. 
You don't appreciate the sights you see. You don't appreciate the aromas that you smell. You don't appreciate the sounds that you hear. Because unless you train yourself, unless you train yourself to ask why did Hashem create this and recognize the fact that Hashem created because Hashem is the native, wants us to enjoy, until you actually go through those steps and consistently train yourself, it's like they're not there. And if you're not sure that this is correct, I'll ask you one penetrating question. Here's the question, and I want you to answer it. You don't have to answer it out loud, but at least in your own mind, as soon as I ask the question, I want you to immediately answer it. The question is, are you rich? Are you rich? And I don't mean in terms of relationships or mitzvahs or purpose. And I mean materially. Are you financially, materially wealthy? Are you rich? Now, almost everyone I've asked this question to, and I get a chance to speak in many different communities, many different audiences, not almost not a single person answers yes. Now, and that's quite interesting, and I'll share with you why. One of the greatest problems we have in our society today is weight loss. 65% of the United States population is overweight or obese. And that's interesting. Why? Because if you look at pictures of the United States population, let's say 100 years ago, what you'll find is everyone was real thin. Now, isn't that strange? Everyone 100 years ago, 150 years ago, were thin as rails. And now everyone, everyone you see has got a corporation, a pot belly. Everyone is overweight. What happened? I'd like to share with you what happened. You see, historically, probably since my separation, since creation, mankind has barely had enough to eat. In the olden days, it was very, very difficult to have enough food. We've been born into a generation that historically is unprecedented. There's so much abundance and so much plenty that the average person is overweight to the extent that the lower you are on the socioeconomic scale, the less wealth you have, more likely the heavier you are. Why? Because it costs money to buy health foods and go to diet class and exercise. And the less wealth you have, more likely the more obesity you have. Something that people a hundred years ago would have laughed at. What do you mean you have so much extra you don't know how to stop eating? But it's not just food. My grandmother was born in Poland pre-World War I. And she told me that she lived, grew up in a two-room house. Now, she explained that it was a two-room house. That means two rooms. One room where the parents slept, and the other rooms where the children slept and they ate and they did their homework or work and whatever else they did. But an entire family, mother, father, and a bunch of kids lived in a two-room house. Now, it happens to be that my grandmother was considered well-off. Her house had a wood floor. They were well-to-do. The average house didn't. But you see, here's the point. We're not talking about a thousand years ago. We're not talking about like a different planet. Our great-grandparents or our grandparents, depending on our age, lived in a manner of life that's so different than our lifestyle that it's hard to imagine. And if you look back at the way people lived then, without electricity, without running water, without heat, with holes in the wall that allowed the winter cold in, with sweating, sweating heat in the summer, regular people lived. My grandmother told me 
that when she came over to the United States, we had a tanta peril. This was a sister, actually, of my grandfather, who had been here earlier, and she said, you must see. You have to see this. She brought them into the apartment and showed them that they had a bathroom in the apartment itself. In the apartment itself, they had their own private bathroom. Wealth that was unprecedented. And you have to recognize that for thousands of years, the average person used an outhouse. In the cold of winter night, and you put on some kind of coat, went out in the back of the house and froze and came back. That was part of life. You chopped wood for a fire. You schlepped water in, carrying it in. And heat was not something that was really common. My father had a friend who grew up, who went to yeshiva in Europe before World War II. He was in a dorm. Now, they didn't have dorms like we have dorms. They rented a sort of a room close to the yeshiva. And my father's friend described how he knew whether it was a cold morning or not. He would live live in the Negevasa. He would leave the cup of water to wash right by his bed. And in the morning, he would kind of peek out from under the blanket. And he would look at the top of the cup of water. If it had frozen over, it was a cold morning. If it hadn't frozen over, it was an okay day. And I want to point out that water does not freeze at 60 or 55 degrees Fahrenheit or even at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit and below. This man slept in a room that water froze. Now, by us, if the heat goes below 50, oh, my goodness, I've got to go. Let's move to my brother. We've got to figure out some solution. We can't have the kids sleep in this bitter cold. Yet regular people lived in that way. And when you compare their lifestyle to our lifestyle, there's almost no basis for comparison. And I'll give you one more illustration just to hone in on the point. If you look at a home that was built in the 1920s, Unless it was refurbished, unless it was refit, you'll notice something very interesting. Nice, spacious rooms. Large dining room, large living room, nice entryway, but tiny closets. Amazing. Nice big bedroom and a very small closet. Nice big hallway and a very small closet. Everything about the house was properly sized except the closets. Why is it? The why is it is quite simple. The builders in those days built homes for people who were going to live in it. The average man had a suit or two. The average woman had a few dresses. So they built closets for people who lived in those times. And unless your house was refit, unless they built much larger closets on it, if it was built in the 1920s or before, it had tiny closets because the average people did not have anywhere near the type of clothing that we have. If you would tell people living in Europe a hundred years ago what the average yeshiva bocher has, he would be flabbergasted. I've heard it told over that in Slobodka, in the large shul in Slobodka, the average balabas did not wear a suit. Didn't wear a suit. Maybe you think they were modern, they wore like a sports jackets. Not exactly. I'll explain to you what happened. In those days, when you got married, you got a new suit. Now, a suit is where the pants and the jacket are made of the same material. And that suit you put on for your wedding and you wore. Shabbos after Shabbos, Shabbos after Shabbos. You had your first kid, your second kid, your third kid, and you had the same suit. 
Well, after a while, you started patching the elbows, <clears throat> patch some more, patch some more, and eventually the jacket got to a point where you couldn't patch it anymore. But the average person didn't have enough money for a whole new suit, so you got another part, either a new jacket to match the pants or new pants to sort of close to match the jacket. And the next suit that you got was when your daughter got married. But there are many years between your own wedding and your daughter's wedding, and the average person came to shul with a jacket and a pants that didn't exactly match. The abundance, the plenty, the wealth that we have is astonishing. Wardrobes and wardrobes. I know a woman who converted the third bedroom of her apartment to be a closet with a cleaner's rack that goes around to get to her dresses. The average person living in our world enjoys such wealth and abundance that any previous generation could not envision it, couldn't imagine it. My Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, grew up in the United States of America, and he told us when his shoes, when he wore a hole in the bottom of his shoe, he didn't have the chutzpah to ask his father for the quarter that it cost to sole it, because his father didn't have that kind of money. So he figured out a solution. He put a piece of cardboard. A piece of cardboard would protect his socks when he walked. The solution was great until he came to a puddle, splash, gone was the cardboard. But the average person didn't have, couldn't imagine what we take for granted. If you'd like to know our wealth, walk into Walmart. <clears throat> walk into Walmart and see rows and rows and rows of abundance. And by and large, we could afford it. We have food on a table that it would be who the Hanasi could not imagine. He was so wealthy that he had winter fruit in the summer, summer fruit in the winter. In my pantry, I have fruit from Portugal and Chile, from China, from across the globe and all times of the year, we have apples or watermelon or whatever we want. We enjoy wealth and convenience of unprecedented amount. Never in the course of history have there been people who are so wealthy. So let's come back to the question. Are you rich? Rich? Come on. I can barely afford my payments. I can, come on, I can barely afford my, my mortgage. Rich? Come on, rich. And in a sense, we're not rich until you train yourself to understand what wealth is. <clears throat> wealth is plenty, abundance. Every one of us has such wealth. The food we eat, the clothing we wear, the cars we drive with a touch of the gas, boom, 200 horsepower pulls me at lightning speed with such ease. I pull up to the pump, fill it up with gas, and we go. Built-in heating. Most of us have stereo systems in our car to enjoy music. Bach and Beethoven were hired by nobility. The only people who listened to such music were people of stature, people of wealth. The average person today enjoys luxuries that kings of yesteryear couldn't imagine. And the astonishing thing is that if you don't train yourself to appreciate it, you might as well not have it because it's almost like it's not there. Me, rich, wealthy, come on. I barely stale bread and, and water. That's all I drink. And if you don't train yourself to appreciate the foods that you eat, you don't train yourself to appreciate the sights that you see, it might as well not be there. And part of the job of a person as he, be, he or she becomes more sophisticated as they become more of an Ever Hashem, is to recognize the tremendous bracha, the tremendous things that Hashem put into the world strictly for us to enjoy. But this is the point. It doesn't come naturally. It's not instinctive. 
You could have hands, legs. You could have perfect mobility. You could have eyes that see in a distance and see colors, see movement. You could have ears that hear delicate sounds. And you could never appreciate it unless you train yourself. You could be eating the most delicious foods and not even recognize how wondrous they are unless you stop and train yourself. And I believe that's the answer for Adam Rishon. As brilliant, as sophisticated as Adam was, he needed training. Hashem wanted him to appreciate who this woman was. And it wasn't until he asked for her, because when you ask for something, you appreciate it more. And even still, it wasn't enough. Still, Adam complained, it's the woman's fault. And the moral of the story is quite plain. You can have all of the wealth, all of the gifts, if you don't train yourself actively, consistently to appreciate it, it's like it's not there. You won't recognize it. It might as well not be there. And I believe that this concept, while important in everything in life, and certainly important in terms of Simcha Zahayim, and in terms of really recognizing the wonders of Hashem's creation, I think has a particular focal point vis-a-vis marriage. <clears throat> I'll explain to you what that is. Let me share with you a little joke. <clears throat> a <clears throat> balabas <clears throat> does very well. Financially secure, he comes to the Rosh Shiv and says, <clears throat> Baruch Hashem, I'm ready to support a son-in-law completely as long as he wants to learn. I want you to find me the best bachar in yeshiva. So <clears throat> the Rosh Shiva sees who the balabas is, recognizes the offer and looks for his best bachar. And after a few days, <clears throat> he calls up the, uh, the balabas and says, yes, I have the best bachar in my yeshiva. Absolutely fant- fantastic. They set up the shidduch and this fellow shows up at the balabas's door, picks up his daughter, <clears throat> drives to a lounge. From the moment this bachar picked the girl up, not a word is said. Silence. And the drive, not a word. And they get out of the car, not a word. They get into the lounge, Nothing. They're sitting down, and finally the uh, girl realizes that maybe he's shy. Maybe he's just really very uncomfortable. So she turns to him and she says, um, so tell me, do, do you, have, uh, you have any siblings? He looks at her and says, uh, I had a very rough day. <laughs> She's a little taken aback, <clears throat> but uh, listen, you got to try. So she tries another one. Um, so tell me, in the, in the summer, do your parents go up to a bungalow? He looks and goes, do we have a problem here? And she realizes something is amiss. And after a few more moments, she says, could you take me home, please? So they get back in the car. He drives her home, drops her off. And the next day, the father calls her and goes, what's pshat? I don't say what happened. What? I asked the best bach, and this is what you give me? So Rashiva said, I'll tell you, I don't know. He is a fine bach. I don't know what happened. Let me call him in. I'll talk to him. And Shiva calls his bach in and says, what's pshat? She asks the question. Don't talk. What's this all about? The Bukha looks at Rosh Hashiva and says, Rosh Hashiva, I told you, I, I, I was very uncomfortable talking to girls. I, I don't know what to say. I asked you, Rebbe, how do I talk to a girl? He said, it's not a big deal. Just talk to the girl the way your father talks to your mother. So that's what I did. It's a joke, I hope. <clears throat> but here's the point. Do you ever notice that children could come from families where the husband and wife don't treat each other exactly the way we'd expect. And ironically, and almost astonishingly, they assume that their marriage is going to be so different, so different, so uniquely different 
that it won't even compare to the parents' marriages. And, of course, when they begin, as Hassan and Kala, and even in the beginning of the marriage, it's nothing at all like the parents' marriage. But many, many a time, what happens is that the way it starts out is not the way it ends up. And after a year or two or three or even four, it's a very, very different situation. And here's the question. It's so simple. The Rambam gave us the formula. He has to respect her more than himself and love her as he does himself. She has to treat him with honor exceedingly as if he's a prince. It's such an easy formula. What so difficult? So as we spent a good amount of time pointing out, there is a very real difference between a marriage and any other relationship that a human being will have. A mother loves her child. There's a maternal instinct. It's natural. Within the mother is a deep-rooted love. And even if the son is a creep and a bum, and even if he turns out to be a gangster, there's still a natural love because that's the way Hashem made the heart of a mother. And a husband and wife are supposed to be the closest relationship the greatest bond of love, the closest, tightest attachment, but it requires work. And if you don't do the work, the opposite happens. And the work, as we pointed out, has two parts to it. The first part is building the bond, appreciating each other, learning to spend time romantically, spending time together talking, using the tools of physical intimacy, working on the relationship. You also have to stop the love leaks, those things that take away that sense of respect and sense of appreciation, the annoying habits, the angry outbursts, the selfish behaviors. And I'd like to share with you that there is another technique which might be as significant and maybe even more significant than any of the other ones. And I'll share with you what it is. The secret to all shalom bias really is one point. If a woman feels cherished, if the wife feels that she's number one, and that she comes first before anything, if she feels that she's held in the highest esteem by her husband, I guarantee that will be a happy home. If the husband doesn't feel that honored, if he doesn't feel that, it won't matter as much. It all focuses on the woman. And why? Because the woman is toveya the relationship, the woman needs the relationship, the woman demands it, and the woman is the relationship manager and if she's happy in the marriage, the marriage will be happy. And you may say to me, oh, so it's obvious. I get it. It's all the guy's fault, right? Listen, if all you need is for the woman to feel cherished. <clears throat> so all that has to happen is the guys have to make sure that their wives feel cherished and held high esteem. So it's obviously all the guy's fault. And that might be true, except that very often women make it difficult for their husband to hold them in high esteem they make it difficult for their husband to cherish them. And the reality is that there has to be a very real respect, one for the other, and a very real appreciation, one for the other. And if a wife makes it difficult for a husband to appreciate her because she's critical, or she nags, or she complains, or she's constantly fixing him, or doing the various things that a woman might by mistake do in her marriage, what's going to happen is 
she's going to make it very, very difficult for him to appreciate her, for him to cherish her, for him to treat her with the regard that she should be treated. And the responsibility is on the wife, and it's on the husband. And here is one of the keys that begin the whole process. Imagine you're a woman, and imagine you're the wife of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Tremendous Tamachacham, the one who writes the Mishnayas. He's the Rabbin Shekol he's literally the Galador. He's also phenomenally wealthy. He's the Nasi. All issues of the clients will come to his doorstep. You live in a palace with, with servants, and, and every imaginable opportunity of wealth is right there. Here's the question. How would you treat your husband? Oh my goodness, my husband, my husband, I guarantee you would treat your husband with tremendous regard. I guarantee you would speak to him in a very, very real, honorable way. You wouldn't carp, you wouldn't complain, you wouldn't nag, you wouldn't constantly be having issues. And you see, that's the point. Each spouse has to work on appreciating the other. You have to work on cutting out the negatives. That means the love busters, and it includes all of those things, annoying habits, angry outbursts. You have to work on not fixing the other, and you have to work on the bond of love. And one of the things that each has to work on is a sense of appreciation. Each, the husband and the wife, have to look at their spouse and say, Wow, I was gifted with a phenomenal spouse. Hashem took such good care of me. I got gold. Wow. Baruch Hashem, I got such a wife. Baruch Hashem, I got such a husband. Baruch Hashem. Does that mean that your wife is flawless? No. If she weren't human, she might be flawless. I guarantee your wife has flaws. Does it mean your husband is perfect? No. Does it mean he makes as much money as Rebuild Nasi? No. Does he learn as well? No. Is he much a man? No. So he has flaws. I can't respect them like Rebuild Nasi. Oh, yes, you can. Why? Because when you focus on the fact that this is the one that Hashem gifted to me, and you focus on everything that He does for you on the positive, when you focus on the fact that this is the one that Hashem wants of me, and yes, He has flaws, but I have flaws also, but you focus on what He brings to you, you will look at Him with regard and appreciation, and treating Him with the honor due will be easy. But the problem is, how do we keep that sense of appreciation and if it's gone, how do we recapture it? And the Sefer HaChinuch explains to us that it's not just possible, it's part of the system. Sefer HaChinuch explains that there's a mitzvah of not being nisave, not having, losasave, don't have desire. Losachmod, losasave, don't desire. But don't desire means in your heart you shouldn't desire. And he says, many people ask the question, how is it possible not to desire? My heart sees a beautiful car or house or shaitel or whatever it may be, and I want it. And says the Sefer it is within the capacity of man to prevent himself and control his thoughts and his desires in whatever he wants. It's bershuso uvedaito. It's within his capacity and his ability to move far away anything that he doesn't want to desire or move things close explains the Sefer Chinuch, we can control these things. What we desire is within our control, and we can reshape what we desire and what we want.
And I'd like to share with you something that I learned in a very interesting way. I often daven in Orsameach in Muncie, and one Shabbos, Rabbi Pliskin, was there. And right after davening, he actually came over, we were speaking, and we were talking about a lot of interesting different things, and he said to me, listen, I'm giving a share, I want you to come. I said, fine. So I went to a classroom, and he had about maybe 30 men in his classroom, and at a certain point, he said, now I'm going to ask you all, when I say something, I want you to repeat it after me. And he said a certain pasuk, a certain expression, and then he said, and now I want you to repeat after me, awesome joy. And he made us say the words, awesome joy. And then a few minutes later, he said something else, and I want you to say it again, awesome joy. No, I want you to say it with meaning, awesome, awesome joy. No, say it, say it like you mean it. And he made us, adults, say out the words, awesome joy. Now say it again, again, and again. By the time we were done, we had said that expression, awesome joy, maybe 30, 40 times. And I have to tell you that when I walked out of that classroom, I was almost high. Now, Baruch Hashem, I'm a, I think I'm a happy person. <clears throat> I don't suffer from down, being down. I'm generally pretty happy. But there was a real difference. By saying that expression, awesome joy, 30, 40 times, I experienced joy, a much greater joy. And I'd like to share with you something that is a basic Musar exercise. The chitzonius, our externals, affect our panemius. Our actions affect the way we feel. Our words affect the way we feel. And if you would like to have a good marriage, I have a Musar exercise that I can't recommend enough. You take a piece of paper, and on it you write the mylas, the positive traits of your spouse. You mention one after another their positive traits. And if you're honest, you'll see that if it's your husband or your wife, each individual has many, many positive traits. You write those down, and then you try this muscle exercise. For 10 minutes a day, and I mean for 10 minutes, you say the words, Thank you, Hashem, for giving me such a husband. He's this and he's that. He's happy and he's cheerful and reliable. and dependent. Whatever his miles are, whatever his strengths are, Thank you, Hashem, for giving me the perfect husband. Hashem, you gave me what I need. You gave me exactly what I need. Look what he brings to the table. He brings this and that and this and that and this and that. And now you may say to me, well, it might work, but that's brainwashing. Come on, that's brainwashing. And I'd like to share with you that it might be brainwashing, but it doesn't begin to compare to what we all do naturally thousands of times, certainly a week and maybe even a day. Do you ever notice that when someone has a flaw and it begins to bother you, in your mind, over and over, you repeat it. I can't believe it. He's late again and again. He's late. I can't, he's late. He's always late. He's late. I can't believe it. Like a tape recorder in your brain, over and over and over, is going to repeat the fact that he's late. Now, he could have 15 other positive traits. He could be a good provider and a good father, and he could be a great husband, and he, he could have everything there. But over and over and over, you're going to have in your brain playing that one flaw. And it cuts against both sides of the gender spectrum. And whether you realize it or not, what you're doing is brainwashing yourself on the negative. And you know why it is that most husbands and most wives don't appreciate one the other? Because naturally we do the opposite. Naturally we find the flaws. Naturally we find what's lacking and oh, not meaning to, but over and over, over and over in our brain, it plays and it repeats, it plays and it repeats. 
And if you tell me that this Musr exercise is brainwashing, you are correct. Writing down your spouse's attributes and saying it out, literally saying it out for 10 minutes a day and thanking Hashem for delivering to you the perfect person is going to brainwash you, hopefully, back to normalcy. Because the other side isn't correct. Because everyone else sees your husband or your wife as a person with many strengths and weaknesses. We all have them. But if you don't do this, what happens is you begin seeing their flaws and their flaws, their flaws and their flaws, nothing but their flaws. And before you know it, it's a very different way that you look at your husband or you look at your wife. And if you don't appreciate who this person is, I guarantee you're not going to respect them. I guarantee it's going to be very hard to love them. And I guarantee the way you act towards them is going to be very, very poor. And if you're a husband who doesn't appreciate his wife, well, guess what? It's going to be very difficult to honor her. But she bounces checks all all the time. How can I tolerate a woman? I've told her time after time not to bounce checks, to be careful to only spend. How How could I put up with her? That is an issue. And as a couple, you sit down and discuss finances, and hopefully she's able to do it, and maybe she's not. And you may have to recognize the fact that your wife has a flaw, as you and I and everyone else does. And what you have to then do is recognize that she's a wonderful person with a flaw. And you have to focus on her mildness, every trait that she has, everything that she brings to the table, everything that she does for you. And if you're married for more than a few weeks, you'll probably realize that women do a tremendous amount I can't tell you how many times in my own marriage there were times when I felt upset at my wife and I felt like I wanted to say something, but I said to myself, how could I say it? She's doing her job, taking care of the kids and the house and the laundry and the cleaning and the cooking and my job. I was in Kolo many years. She was working for a living. That's my job. When I signed Aksuba, I took on the obligation to be Mepharnes, to take care of the needs of the house, that was my obligation. Not only is she, is she doing her job, she's doing mine as well. And many a time, if I had wanted to say something, I couldn't because it had an overwhelming sense of, how could I say anything? And a husband has to recognize how much his wife does for him. I had a guy once said to me, my wife, she's just a freeloader. She's just taking it easy. You know, I work so hard. I work so hard and she's just taking it easy. How could I appreciate her? What was interesting was he had recently had a baby. So I asked him, how come you look so well-rested? Who got up with the baby left? Well, she does, of course. Who feeds the baby? She does, of course. Who chains the baby? She does, of course. Who buys the clothing? She does, of course. Who buys the food? <clears throat> well, she does. Who cooks the food? Mm-hmm. Who takes care of the house? Mm-hmm. Who takes... And if you look at the list, the long, long list of what a woman does for the home, and you begin counting, and you begin to realize how much of your life is organized and structured and is vastly improved because of your wife, if you write that list down and repeat it, you have an unending sense of appreciation of how could I ever pay back that which my wife does for me. And if you're married to a man, you have a husband, and you say, well, he's not what I expected. I wanted a guy who was X, Y, and Z, and everyone has their intolerance level. I can't tolerate a guy who's lazy. I can't tolerate it. Or I need a guy who's X type of masmid. A woman once asked me a question. She said, her husband is a good provider 
and he's responsible and he spends time with the kid and he learns. <clears throat> but <clears throat> there's time during the day when he clearly could be learning more and he's not, <clears throat> and it's not the kind of husband that she wanted. How could she possibly respect him? <clears throat> and he's not the person that she wanted to marry. And I couldn't really respond, but I told her what was so obvious. And that is that, listen to what you just said. Your husband is a good husband. He loves you, takes care of you, takes care of the kids. He's a good provider. And he's from, not from enough, not the way you like. So that's a issue. Maybe had you been able to design him, you would have designed him better. <clears throat> Hashem didn't design him that way. But Hashem provided for you the best possible husband. And you see so many mailas, <clears throat> so many things that he brings to the table. How could you not appreciate it? How could you not feel an overwhelming sense of, wow, look at what a great husband is? The only way that you can not see it is because all you see is one thing over and over in your mind plays that tape. And this is his flaw, and this is his flaw, and this is his flaw. And it plays again and again until that's all you see. And everything else pales in comparison. And without realizing it, what you're doing is you're brainwashing yourself. You're literally creating a reality that has no connection to what's really going on. And there is a solution. The solution is you have to take control of your mind. And the way you take control of your mind is you sit there for 10 minutes a day and over and over you repeat the advantages, the milas, what your husband brings to the table, what your wife brings to the table. And if nothing else explains a stipler, where would you be now if you were single? Imagine you're 30, 35, 40. Where would you be now if it weren't for your husband? Do you know what it's like to be an older single, and I mean an older, older single, and not have a spouse? That recognition alone explains a stipler should be enough to allow us to appreciate our spouse, but you actually have to do the exercise. I think what this Chazal teaches us is a fundamental principle. Adam Marishan, as sophisticated as he was, as brilliant as he was, needed techniques to appreciate Chava. Brilliant woman created by Hashem. Perfect match for Adam. But until he actually asked for it, he didn't fully appreciate it. And even when he asked for it, it wasn't enough. Because a human being by nature, we are kafri tov. We don't naturally appreciate, we don't naturally recognize the good. And if you'd like a proof to this in our own reality, ask your friends the question, are you rich? Rich, who's rich? And then recount the wealth that we have at our fingertips, the luxuries, the abundance, the plenty. I don't know a person my age or younger who ever went to bed hungry. And I don't mean hungry because, oh, mom, meatloaf again. I don't know a person my age or younger who ever didn't have enough food to eat. And yet historically, that was part of, the, part of life. You ever hear the expression, we'll just have to tighten our belt buckles? You had to tighten your belt buckles because you had to do without food for whatever time period it was. And you lost weight. We don't even know what that means. The wealth, the ashiras that we have, but we don't appreciate it. We have eyes with which to see, hands with which to feel. We have sights, we have colors, we have textures, we have aroma. Delicious foods, and unless you train yourself, you don't see it, you don't feel it, and you can have the most perfect God-given spouse, handcrafted, custom-designed for you, and you don't even see it, and you don't even recognize it. All you do is carp and complain, and of course you complain, because look at his flaws, 
Look at what's wrong with her. Look, how can I appreciate that? And unless you take control of your mind, unless you can take control of your thoughts, you'll never be happy with him or with her because guess what? He's human being, and that means he has flaws. She's human being, and that means she has flaws. And if you need the perfect husband or the perfect wife to be happy, give up being married because those people have not been invented yet. And your husband will have flaws. And there will be things that are lacking in him. And each person has their own package. And there will be things wrong with your wife. And if you'd like to be happily married, what you have to do is you have to train yourself not to do that which we naturally do. You have to train yourself to ignore the flaws. You have to focus on all of the milas. And you have to say them again and again till they become habitual to you. And I have one more exercise that is certainly if you're having Shalom bias problems, I highly recommend. If you're ever in a situation where you're having Shalom bias problems, and even if you're not, it's a fine exercise, I highly recommend something that I read in a Sefer that an older Rav suggested, and he says that he found that it was a panacea for many, many Shalom bias problems that were intractable, could not be helped. This was the Yeshua. He'd recommend to the husband and recommend to the wife each to daven for their spouse's success. That means the husband, after he's finished davening in the morning, for 10 minutes, with his tune still on, he should say the words, Hashem, please help my wife. She needs help with this and that. And today she's going through this and that. Please, Hashem, please help her. And he should ask for everything that she needs and daven and daven for her success in every area for a full 10 minutes. And he would recommend to a woman to put her hand on the mezuzah and for 10 minutes, say, Hashem, please let my husband succeed in learning and having good chavrusas and it should work out and he should do well in every area. And whatever his issues are, she should daven and daven for 10 minutes. And he says that oftentimes he found that very real problematic marriages turned around. And I'd like to share with you why. Number one, because tefillah works. Dominating works. And if you have a happier wife or a happier husband, well, guess what? They're going to be happier, and that alone can have a great effect. <clears throat> if your husband has success in every area, <clears throat> your wife has success in whatever it is, <clears throat> well, guess what? It, likely that alone can make a difference. But there's a much more subtle <clears throat> and much more real effect. The Ramban explains to us that the mitzvah of a haftal recha kamocha sounds impossible. Love your neighbor like yourself. How is it possible? Self-love is the strongest <clears throat> intuition, <clears throat> the strongest sense that Hashem put within us, and the luck is that my life comes before anyone else's. So how could it be? Explains in Ramban that the Torah doesn't say, V'ahavta esrei echa kamocha. It doesn't say love your friend like yourself. V'ahavta limrei echa. Feel the sense of love to your neighbor as you do to yourself. And Ramban explains what that means. <clears throat> Whatever I have, I should wish my friend to have. Honor and wealth and learning and children, every success in the world I wish him to have. I wish him to have good and everything. I wish him all the best in the world. And when I wish him all the best in the world, I wish everything that I wish for myself onto him, I'm fulfilling I'm feeling an unbridled sense of love and affection for my friend as I do for myself. When you daven for the success of your spouse, even if you're angry, even if you're upset, you know what you're doing? You're training yourself in loving your spouse. Let's say your wife said something that you feel was inappropriate and she hurt your feelings. 
And it's difficult for you to love her. And that's natural. She didn't treat you the way she should. <clears throat> you don't feel the way you should. If in dominant you say the words, Hashem, please give her everything. Let her have success and have an easy time with the children. Easy time, And you wish her every bracha in the world. <clears throat> Number one, your tefillahs are powerful and may affect her day. Number two, <clears throat> you're going to be training yourself in loving her. And it's true for a husband, it's true for a wife, and it works on both sides of the equation. I think this Chazal is teaching us that appreciation isn't instinctive. Adamarisha needed help. We need help appreciating all the wealth that we have, all the material gifts that we have. And if you'd like to have a successful marriage, you have to train yourself to appreciate your spouse. The perfect human being hasn't been born, but the perfect spouse for your needs was given to you. And I'd like to close with one last thought. Many years ago, the Roshiva Zetzal was already old, older, and wasn't so easy to get into him. But a certain couple had been newly married, or maybe within six months of their marriage, and things were heading south in a very quick way. And I got this couple into the Roshiva Zetzal to speak with him to see if Roshiva could do something for them. They met with the Roshiva for about... Oh, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. And from that meeting on, the marriage changed radically. And you may wonder, what was the secret, Ruch HaKodesh, some Kamea, that the Shiva Zetzal did? What was the magic? And I'll share with you exactly what the Shiva Zetzal did. See, it happens to be that the Shiva knew the fellow involved. He was a fellow in the yeshiva, so the Shiva knew him very well. He didn't really know the young woman very well, but he brought them both into his office and he listened very carefully, and he picked up something. And he asked the young man to step outside, and he spoke to the woman for a few minutes, asked a few more questions. He asked her to leave, and asked the young man to come back in. And when the young man came back in, Roshiva Zatzal said, very hush of girl, very impressed, very impressed. And then Roshiva asked a question or two, and he spoke a little more, and Roshiva again said the same expression, very hush of girl, very, very impressed. And he spoke a little bit more, and in the third time, the Shiva Zetzal said almost the exact same expression, very hush of person, I'm very impressed. And that expression changed their marriage. And I'll explain to you why. The Shiva Zetzal picked up very quickly that a big part of the problem in that marriage was that he was a very successful young man. He had done very well in Shiva, very good fellow. And he held of himself, and maybe he held of himself a bit too much. And he looked down on his wife because she wasn't on his madrega. And what the Shiva Zetzal was telling him was, she's a very hush of girl. When he heard his Rebbe, Nagadol Ador, say that he holds of this woman, all of a sudden she changed in his eyes. She became a different person and their marriage changed. Was this fellow right or was he wrong? Clearly he missed the step. And this is the point. If you look down on your husband, you look down on your wife, your marriage is going to be in jeopardy. But <laughs> look, he's late and he's sloppy and, and she's just not who I expected. And you're probably right. And guess what? You also have flaws. And unless you train yourself to recognize the milas, the positive attributes, and the strengths that they bring, in your brain is going to play that tape over and over the flaws and you have to take control of your thoughts. If you do that and you appreciate your spouse, you recognize their strength. You treat them with the respect due because you appreciate them and your marriage flourishes and succeeds. And if not, it ends up the way many 
unfortunately many marriages do. Hashem grant us the wisdom, understanding, ability to put this into practice.